my name's Chris Miller. Um, I'm just part of the Elder Candidacy Program, and he asked me to preach this week, and so pretty excited having this opportunity. So if you would, uh, open your Bibles to Philippians 2. We're going to be in verses 5 through 11. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible today, there should be Bibles at your feet. You can use those. If you don't own a Bible, uh, feel free to take that one as a gift from Remedy. Um, so let me read this real quick. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray and ask God's grace upon us. Father, we are truly weak, and we are sinful, and we are in need of grace. Your grace, which is so much greater than our sin. We pray that today you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us eyes to just gaze into the face of Christ and see your glory and be forever transformed by what we find there. God, we know that there is no words that are going to cause this to happen if you don't shine into our hearts uh, that light we will not see. So we ask that you would put your son on display this morning. In Jesus' name, and for his glory. Amen. So context is extremely important. It was 1998. There was an astronaut. His name uh, was Story Musgrave. And he was training for the Hubble spacecraft repair mission that he was about to go on. So he was in this thing called a vacuum chamber. And he's in here, and it, it sucks out all the air, and it kind of creates an a atmosphere that's kind of like outer space so that he can train in his spacesuit and, and get prepared for the mission. And as he's doing this, he starts to develop um, something on his hand. He develops frostbite on the right fingers of his right, well, the right hand of his <laughs> right fingers. Um, so he develops frostbite, and this almost... Um, it almost jeopardizes the mission. It's almost bad enough to where he wasn't able to complete his mission. And so why do I tell you this story? It's really random, right? Um, In the same way that human beings can't survive in a vacuum, Scripture, particular passages of Scripture like Philippians 2, 5 through 11, shouldn't be treated as if they exist in a vacuum, a part of everything else. And so context is extremely important. So right before we actually dive into this text, we're going to look at two things from the immediate context of Philippians uh, that I think will kind of help us just draw in the text and see it in a clear way. You might think, if you will, kind of cheesy, but as a pair of binoculars, there's two lenses, and so these two things will act like the two lenses of binoculars and allow us to see clearly this text. And so the first thing that we can get from the context of Philippians, Paul's letter to them, is the gospel's advancement is at stake. The second thing that we're going to look at is Paul's going to give us a definition of humility. So first, let's just dive in to this gospel's advancement at stake. Um, Paul, from the beginning of his letter all the way to the end, is all about 
this one thing, to, to put in front of them the gospel and to show that the gospel's advancement is at stake. And so he uses um, many things that you would find commonplace in a letter. He uses them as opportunities to tell them that, hey, the gospel's advancement, it's happening. The gospel's advancement, it's happening. The gospel's advancement, it's happening. For instance, in his Thanksgiving prayer, he mentions, God, I thank you for the Philippians because their partnership with me in the gospel. And so it's this idea that they're partnering with me and the gospel is advancing to the loss. Second thing he says in his prayer, he says, God, I thank you that the work that you started in them, you're going to bring it until the day of completion. And so the gospel is advancing in their own lives. And so then the very next thing he mentions is his imprisonment. And so it's kind of like, oh, you know, you have a family member who's, who's imprisoned and you don't know the details and they're writing you a letter finally. And so you would expect of them to say, okay, well, Paul, tell us about your imprisonment or mom, tell me why you're in prison or whatever it is. And so Paul even uses this opportunity that he's normally just going to say, oh, you know what? It's okay. I'm in prison, but it's all good. He even uses this as an opportunity to talk about the advancement of the gospel. He talks about how, oh, my imprisonment is for Christ. The guards who have come up and around me, they have heard that my imprisonment is for Christ. Though the other people that have come around myself, they have also heard the gospel of Christ. The preachers of Rome, other Christians in Rome, since I've been imprisoned, they've gotten all the more bold to preach the gospel of Christ. And even my enemies, seizing an opportunity to kick a dog while I'm down. I'm in prison. They're going to kick me while I'm down. Even they now are preaching the gospel. Even though it's out of wrong motivations, the gospel is advancing even through them because of Paul's imprisonment. And so this is kind of the tone all the way throughout Philippians. He's just talking about the gospel's advancement, the gospel's advancement. And it kind of climaxes at chapter 1, verse 26, where he looks to the Philippians and he says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so he's talking about the gospel advancement, and then all of a sudden he turns to the Philippians. Only let your life uh, be worthy uh, of the gospel of Christ. So why, why, why does he put this in, uh, directly after he tells us, let your life be worthy? He goes on to say, well, what does it mean to live a worthy life? And he talks about some things like standing firm in unity as a body in the midst of persecution and suffering and false teaching. And then we, get, we arrive to kind of the first problem that Paul is dealing with with the Philippian church, disunity. And he knows that disunity has this potential to break them up and to not allow the gospel to advance. And then on top of that, they won't be living lives worthy of the gospel if they continue in disunity. And so Paul then, we turn to his definition. He gives humility. He gives the definition of humility before the Philippians as kind of the answer to this great problem. But I kind of wonder, you know, why, why, why am I saying this to remedy church? Because when I look out, I don't necessarily see disunity problems all over the place. That's not necessarily what I'm, I'm bringing the sermon for. Um, But I think there's a bigger issue at hand, and Paul knows this, that it's not necessarily disunity that's the problem in itself, but it's something deeper. It's it's something more. It's something like the roots of the problem. And the the root for Paul, I think, he's he's seeing selfism and meology. Everything's about me. Everything's about self. It's all about, it's all about putting myself higher than others. And even to the point of where in pride, I'm dethroning God in my heart. And I'm putting myself on the throne of God. And so humility is the solution to the deeper problem of pride, which is behind the disunity of the Philippians. And so maybe it's not disunity for Remedy Church. Maybe it's not 
uh, disunity, but maybe it's something else. Maybe it's an addiction to pornography. Maybe it's uh, wanting to please other men and wanting to receive glory from men instead of glory from God. Maybe it's anger issues at home. Maybe it's um, not wanting to serve our wives or serve our children or serve our husbands. Maybe it's, um, you know, whatever the problem is. Maybe it's prayerlessness. Maybe it's a love of sports to the neglect of God. I don't, I don't know what the problem is, but we, it, I think if you, if, you, if you just analyze this problem, if you go to the roots, I think what you'll find is we all have the same problem, this problem of pride. This problem of wanting to escalate ourselves up in God's place. And so I think Paul's message to the Philippians is just as relevant to us. Humility is what we need. And, um, and so what Paul's about to do is he's, he's about to put Christ on display. Because he knows the only, the only answer to this great problem of pride, which then facets out into all these different areas, the only answer to it is if we behold Christ and when we are beholding Christ, when we are gazing into the face of Christ, we catch a glimpse of God's glory and are forever transformed and changed into that likeness. And so I think that's what Paul is trying to do with the Philippian church and I think it's just as relevant for us today as Remedy Church. And so look with me at uh, chapter 2 verse 3. He gives us a definition of humility and since that's what he's trying to For us to capture, I think it's important that we get the definition out first. It says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And so here's where uh, the definition comes from. I put it as this, The mindset which causes us to treat others as more value or as more significance than ourselves. So it's the mindset that causes us to treat others as of more value and more significance than ourself, which obviously that leads to us serving them and putting ourselves before them and for their good. Um, so um, if we continue um, in pride, I'm convinced, and I think Paul's convinced of this, that the advancement of the gospel will be hindered in our own lives. And why is that important? Well, first of all, we know that people, when we believe in Christ, we are saved from eternal punishment. So there's one reason, right? You know, other people need to believe. They need to hear this gospel. They need to be saved from the wrath that's to come. You know, that's one. But I think the greater motivation can be found in this quote by Piper. He, he pens this famous quote. He says this, mission exists because worship doesn't. It's this idea that when people believe in the gospel, we are made then able to give worship in the proper glory that God is due. And so ultimately, the big problem is, if we're not living lives of humility, the big problem is, is that the glory of God is hindered in our own life. The advancement of the gospel in our own life is hindered, and maybe other people aren't going to hear it either because we're in pride, and we're not going to share it with them. And so I think that's what's at stake. And so in this passage, we're going to look at five things um, to behold regarding Christ. And the first thing that we're going to behold regarding Christ really answers the question, why behold? Uh, it's we behold Christ so that we can become like Christ. This is in uh, verse 5. This is where I'm going to read. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul here, is, he's, he's using a commanding tone of voice. It's not like, oh, you know, please, if you have time, have this mind in yourselves that Christ also had. It's have this mind. It's absolutely necessary for us to have this mind that Christ himself had. That's the the tone of the passage. And notice here that there's two subjects, right? There's yourselves, there's Christ Jesus. So 
put yourselves in the place of yourselves, right? So remedy, have this mind, which is also in Christ Jesus. And so the idea is, Paul now, verses 6 through 11, he's going to put a bunch of truths about Christ in front of us. And we're to look at those truths and try to grasp the mindset of Christ from those things and make it our own mindset. Now, the idea is not that we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just try harder to be more like Christ. I mean, we obviously know that God's grace needs to be behind us. God's grace needs to work in us both to will and to do things for the glory of God. So I'm not saying, you know, uh, pull it up for, by your bootstraps and do all that. Uh, but the idea there is Christ is going to put, I mean, Paul's going to put Christ in front of us. And so um, let me try to capture, I think, what this idea of beholding Christ really means. Um, there's two examples I'm going to give. Think of Acts 9, where Paul is on the Damascus Road, right? And he's walking. He just got some documents signed that gave him permission to throw Christians into prison. So he's on his way to Damascus. He's going to throw Christians in prison. Who knows? He might partake in stoning Christians like Stephen back in Acts 7. So he's on his way, and then all of a sudden, a light appears to him, right? And then Jesus actually speaks to him. And from that point, Paul's life is no, no, no more marked by pride. It's an automatic reverse, it's automatically, and then he's marked by humility. He sees the light of Christ. He sees the glory of Christ. And then all of a sudden, he becomes one of the greatest servants in the Bible of Christ. And it's that idea. That's, I think, where he's coming from. Another example uh, comes more, uh, it's a post-biblical example. Jonathan Edwards, in 1737, he writes about a time where he went out into the woods for the sake of just praying and seeking God and contemplating about him. And so let me just read you this. I think this would be helpful. Once as I rode out into the woods for my health, having alighted from my horse in a retired place, as my manner commonly has been, to walk for divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that for me was extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent, with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception. It continued for, as I can judge, about an hour, which kept me in the greater part of time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. Um, I'm not saying that we all need to go walk out in the woods and have this, you know, amazing revelation of God right now. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, you know, maybe it's not out in the woods and praying and he gives you this great glimpse of God. Maybe it's while right now you're listening to the sermon and you read in the text and just something just moves your heart about Christ. And, it, and you, just, you just literally, you feel the glory of Christ and you want to exalt him and worship him. Maybe it's something as simple as you're, you're just at home and you're praying and you're not moved at all emotionally, but you notice that throughout that day after you read this passage, you're able to serve better your wife, you're, you're able to serve better your fellow co-workers, whatever it may be. Whatever it is, we need to catch glimpses of God's glory in Christ. So that's the idea. And so let's look at the first thing that we need to behold about Christ. The second behold statement. Second thing we need to behold Christ, sorry. Behold the heights and majesty from which Christ came. This is coming from verse 6. 
which says, who, because he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The who is just simply picking up, you know, look at verse 5, the very end, Christ Jesus. He's the who of verse 6. So we're talking about Christ. He's in the form of God. So that's the first statement. And then he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's the second statement. So let's take them in order. What does it mean to be in the form of God? We know that it at least means this, right? That when we look at the Father and we look at the Son, we see see the same outward appearance, the same outward splendor, the same outward glory. But I think if we stop short there, we don't quite... Um, capture what this word, this, this idea of in the form of God is really conveying. Because look at the very next phrase. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's very much saying that Jesus is equal with God. So it's more than just outward appearances. It's more than that. Jesus himself is participating in the very essence of who God is. The very characteristics that make God, God. That's the idea here. And so let me just draw this out um, Uh, with the English language as much as it can muster, to paint this wonderful portrait that Paul here is painting of Jesus. The repetition is intentional. It's so that we might just think about the glory of God. In the same way that the Father is God, Jesus himself is God. John 1.1, the Word was with God and the Word was God. In the same way that the Father cannot be fully known or fully understood, Jesus can't be fully known or fully understood. In the same way that the Father has always existed, Jesus has always existed. In the same way that the Father is completely self-sufficient, Jesus is self-sufficient and perfect in every way. In the same way that the Father is not bound to time, Jesus is not bound to time. In the same way that the Father is infinite and immeasurable, Jesus is infinite and immeasurable. In the same way that the Father is unchangeable in his being, Jesus is unchangeable in his being. In the same way that the Father knows all things and is the fountain of wisdom, Jesus knows all things and is the fountain of wisdom. In the same way that the Father is all-powerful, Jesus is all-powerful. In the same way that the Father is faithful, good, just, merciful, gracious, Jesus is faithful, good, just, merciful, and gracious. In the same way that the Father is sovereign above above everything and holy above everything, Jesus is sovereign above everything and holy above everything. In the same way that the Father is love, Jesus is love. So truly, we can truly say this about Christ. In the same way that we speak of the Father's being God, Jesus can also rightly be said to be God. That's the point. He's in the form of God. And so what Paul is saying here is, behold the majesty, behold the heights from which Christ came. There is no higher place. He is in the form of God. There's nothing higher. And so the mindset that we can take from this is, you can't be too high for humility. There's not a position of authority in the universe that doesn't also require us to be humble. We know this because we just saw that Christ, who is God, who is the highest position of authority, the highest power in the universe, he is humble. And so we are not to, during our lives, use authority, power, or honor as an excuse not to be a servant to other people, not to treat others as more important than ourselves. So behold the majesty and the heights from which Christ came. The third thing that we behold, behold the humility of God and the decision-making of Christ. This also comes in verse 6. So let's look at that second phrase again. He did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Um, The idea here is showing that Jesus is equal with God, and even though he's equal with God and he has every right to everything that God has, the, the right to our worship, the right to be served by everyone, the right to all things, 
even though he has that right, he's not going to use it for himself. He's not going to exploit it for himself. But rather, he's going to give, give, and give. And so D.A. Carson's helpful here in summarizing this point. He says this. Let me find it. The eternal son did not think of his status as God as something that gave him the opportunity to get and get and get. Instead, his very status as God meant he had nothing to prove, nothing to achieve, and precisely because he is one with God, this kind of God, he made himself nothing and gave and he gave and he gave. So that's the idea. When we look at Christ, we are to look at his mindset and we can grab from his mindset that our God is humble and we all want to be like God. And So for us, that means, you know, heaven is full of people who are like God, who are made in his image and who are transformed in Christ to be more and more like Christ until that final day when we see him as he is and we become as he is. Heaven is full of people who are like God. And so we need to live lives that um, humility can be clearly seen from. And so one of the tests to whether or not the gospel has truly touched us is do we see humility beginning to infiltrate that prideful root that we have since the fall of man, since Adam ate the fruit in pride? You know, remember the serpent. What did the serpent use to tempt Adam? You'll be like God. You'll be higher than you really are. That's the temptation. So one of the, reason, one of the tests for if the gospel has touched us is do our lives start to reflect the humility of Christ that Christ himself shows? All right, the fourth thing that we want to behold in Christ, we just behold, beheld his heights and the majesty from which he came. We just beheld that God is humble through the mindset of Christ. And now we're going to behold the shame and the depths to which Christ sank. In humility. Behold the shame and the depths to which Christ sank in humility. This comes from verses 7 through 8. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So the first thing I think we need to look at is that verb, he emptied himself. There's a lot of people out there out there that will write books and write articles and uh, tell us that this, this, this verb emptying, what it means is, well, like a glass of water, you empty the water and you replace it with something else like Coke or something. That God emptied himself of his godhood and replaced it with manhood. That God, you know, he gave up his divinity and pr- replaced it with humanity. But that's just simply not what the text allows. Anytime we're reading the Bible and we come across a verb that can be taken in a multiple number of ways, which pretty much is every single verb in the English language, we need to read what comes right before it and what comes right after it. Because a lot of times, people will put things right after it that hint at what the meaning of that verb should be taken as. And so let's look right after this. He emptied himself. How did he empty himself, Paul? By taking the form of a servant. There's no mention of giving up something. There's only mention of taking. And so we can truly say that How did he empty himself? He emptied himself by taking something into himself, not by giving up something. He emptied himself by adding something to himself, not subtracting something from himself. Well, then why use the word empty? Uh, I think this this analogy might, you know, helps out with this. It helps me a little bit. You know, think back to your school days. You know, for some of us, that's a little bit longer than 
uh, others, but think back to your school days when, you know, recess was in session and you got to go outside and you got to play some, some basketball hoops. Or maybe you didn't have recess in your school. Think about the time when you played a pickup sport of any kind. And you got this two groups of people, right? And, and the first thing that we do is we say, oh, you're, you're the best at basketball. You're the, you're the second best at basketball. Separate. You're the captains because I want to have a chance to at least win a game. And so you separate them out and you say, okay, you got first pick, you got ball, right? And this person picks and this person picks and this person picks and this person picks. And inevitably what happens every single time this process starts is you have that last kid, right? That last kid that hasn't been picked yet, he's the last pick. You know, he's the last pick of the draft. And, you know, you're kind of, you, you all know why he's the last kid. It's usually because he can't play basketball. He can't pass the basketball. He can't dribble the basketball. He can't shoot the basketball. He can't spell basketball. He's not athletic. And, and, and so the captain reluctantly, he takes him on his team. He says, okay, I got you. You're the last one. And he's adding something to his team, but the value of the team's not going up, right? It's going down. In fact, that guy might ruin whatever chemistry there was on the team. You know, we... we we don't know. So I think this is helpful that it, it, it's Christ is adding something to himself that's so much lower than the glory he already has. He's in the form of God. And so he's adding something to himself, the form of man, which is so much lower than the heights and the majesty that we've already seen, that Christ already has. So it's the idea is adding something of less value, less glory. So I think that's the idea um, that Paul's making here. So reading the rest of the verse, we see that it says, it mentions he's born in the likeness of man, and it, it mentions his obedience to the point of death, and then it mentions that his death was even on a cross. And so we're going to look at three things that kind of reflect the depths to which Christ sank. Um, we're going to look at his birth, we're going to look at his obedient lifestyle, and then we're going to look at his death on the cross. Um, so the first thing is the birth. You know, we've all heard it, the story of Jesus' birth. We've probably all read the story of Jesus' birth. Just real quickly from Luke 2, 6 through 7. Um, this gives a record of the account. It says, And while they, Mary and Joseph, were there at Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. Um, I don't know how many of you are parents, I mean, I know we all have parents, right? Um, I don't know how many of you are parents. I became a parent, you know, May 16th. So nine weeks ago, pretty, pretty soon, pretty sudden. And um, my daughter, Eliana, was born. And I think, you know, the first, one of the first things that I thought about when I held her in my arms, it wasn't the first thing because I was, you know, there was some shock. Um, one of the first things that I thought about as I was holding her in my arms was, man, God, Jesus how could you submit yourself to this process, this, this birth process? Like, how could you, how could you, what, what kind of humility is that? And so let me use Eliana as an illustration. She's only nine weeks old, and she's already an illustration in the sermon, but here we go. My daughter Eliana, when she was born, she's utterly dependent upon parents and nurses. She was born with the cord wrapped around her neck three times, and so nurses weren't there to cut it away. She probably would have died. I found out pretty soon that every couple of hours she cries and it's because she's hungry and she needs milk. And so we have to provide her milk or she would probably die, right? People without food die. And so the next thing that I found out, you know, when she's crying and it's not because she's hungry, sometimes that means it's because she just dirtied her diaper, right? And so that's something I found out. Eliana needs us for everything. I mean, we're around her, and I can tell that she's, she's looking at us. She's beginning to learn how to talk. She's gurgling a little bit, you know, learning the English language. She's 
um, developing her mind in a healthy way because there's people around her giving her comfort and all the things that she needs. Um, She needs that. And so let's forget Eliana for a second and put Christ in that place. He submitted himself to that process. He went, all, he went through all the things that we all went through. We were all born. Um, so let's, let's draw this out a little bit. Um, he spent, Jesus, who is God, spent around nine months in the womb of Mary as an embryo, slowly developing. He was born in a lowly place. There's no room for him. He's born in a stable, right? Um, the one who um, always provides food, now is need every two hours for Mary to provide food for him. Um, the one who is completely self-sufficient and never has had a need. In the words of A.W. Tozer, he said, need is a creature word. Now we find that every two hours, Jesus has to have his diaper changed by Mary. God, behold the heights, now behold the depths. Um, let's draw it out a little bit more. The one who knows everything now is to grow in knowledge, grow in wisdom, and grow in physical strength. The one who provided manna for Israel while they were out in the wilderness and without it they would have died now needs someone to provide him with food or he's going to die. The one who said to the lady at the well in John 4, I am the well of living water. If you drink from me, you'll never thirst again. Flash flash forward to John 19. He's dying on the cross and he says two words, I thirst. So put those two together. The well of living waters now says I thirst. Um, The God who is never tempted by evil, now in the man Christ Jesus, is tempted by Satan himself in the wilderness. I mean, just soak in the deep-seated humility of God that we find in the birth of Christ. Um, So let's move to his obedient lifestyle. And so there's two things I want to, just two quick examples from his life I want to give. One that kind of shows us that he was a servant. He treated other men as more important, other women as more important than himself. Um, another thing that I want to look at is just his unflinching obedience to his father. So the first thing comes from John 13, the foot washing account. Uh, it says this in verses 14 through 15. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I've done to you. So think about this. God is washing the feet now of sinful men. I mean, he's washing the feet of Peter, who's going to deny him in less than a day, three times. And, and, and this blew my mind because for whatever reason, all the times I've read this passage uh, in my life, I've never noticed, but Judas is still in the room at this point. Judas also had his feet washed. Jesus washed the, the feet of the man who was going to betray him, and he knew he was going to betray him. Um, so let's look, that, there's a, an example of his humility and service and counting others as more important than himself. The greatest among you is your servant. Um, and so now let's look at his unflinching obedience. This comes from Matthew twenty six thirty nine. It's his uh, prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, he says this, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And we know that one of the things that's in this cup, you know, what's in this cup? You know, he says, let this cup pass from me. One of the things in the cup is the cross and it's, physical pains and all the things that come along with that. But we know from the Old Testament that every time that the cup of the Lord is mentioned, and it's mentioned in the way of it becomes full and then he pours out his wrath on the nations, we know that what's really in this cup is the wrath of God against sin. 
And so this is why Jesus is so bothered when he's praying. He's not bothered because he's afraid of death. I mean, how many of his disciples later on go to the cross willingly and gladly and go to their persecution willingly and gladly? The captain of our salvation is not afraid of that. He's afraid of the wrath of God against sin. And yet, this is his stance. But not my will, your will. Not my will, your will. And so, Again, soak in the marvelous humility of Jesus seen through his absolute obedience to his Father and his absolute service to his disciples. Um, And the final thing that we want to look at from this verse is his death. Even death upon the cross. I mean, Paul, even death upon the cross, it's to bring our attention to the fact that this is shocking. This should shock us. And, you know, a lot of times in America today, we, we we forget what the cross really entailed, and it doesn't shock us. And so let me just kind of list some things. It, it was an outlaw's death, you know, criminal's death. It was an outcast's death, someone that wasn't liked by people. Um, you didn't go to the cross and leave with a shred of honor left to your name in the eyes of the people, right? And so, um, you know, that, that's kind of some of it. And so let me, let me give you a Piper quote that really, it, it, it kind of captures what it meant, like, from the physical pain standpoint of being on the cross. And the idea is that we wouldn't be passive in seeking the humility of Christ, but we would... In the moment when we need the humility the most, we would keep the cross on our minds, that we bring these things up on our minds. We wouldn't just passively pray, God, take this away from me, but we would fight our sin with a vision of Christ on the cross. And so this is what he says, demand of your mind to fix its gaze on Christ on the cross. Use all your fantasizing power to see his lacerated back. 39 lashes left, little flesh intact. He heaves with his breath up, and down against the rough vertical beam of the cross. Each breath puts splinters into laceration. The Lord gasps. From time to time, he screams out with intolerable pain. He tries to pull away from the wood, and the massive spokes through his wrist rip into the nerve endings, and he screams again with agony, and he pushes up with his feet to give some relief to his wrists, but the bones and the nerves in his pierced feet crush against each other with anguish, and he screams again. There's no relief. His throat is raw from screaming and thirst. He loses his breath and he thinks he's suffocating. And then all of a sudden, his body involuntarily gasps for air. And all the injuries unite in pain. In torment, he forgets about the crown of two-inch thorns. And he throws his head back and drives the thorns into the vertical beam of the cross, driving it a half inch into his skull. His voice reaches a soprano pitch of pain and sobs break over his pain-wracked body as every cry brings more and more pain. Yes, death, even death on the cross. And so Paul has just put in front of us the majesty and the heights from which Christ came and now he's showing us the step-by-step process of him lowering himself which climaxes, which has its pinnacle of lowness in his death on the cross. Birth, step down. Obedience and serving others, step down. Death on the cross, the bottom of humility. And so, behold, the shame and the depths to which Christ sank. And the reason, I think the mindset that Paul wants us to get from this is that um, we just saw that you can never be too high for humility. Well, now we see that you can never go too low in service. You can never go too low in service. You can never go too low for humility. There's no excuse out there for having a lack of humility. I mean, you, you, you might think to yourself, but, but this person 
you know, at work, he did this to me, or she did this to me, or, you know, I've been through a lot, I've been through this, and as graciously as I can say this truth, I say it to you, Jesus Christ washed Judas's feet, the man who, who betrayed him and put him on the cross, and then on top of that, and obviously the, the top of all tops, he took the wrath of God on behalf of you and me. There's no excuse. There's nothing out there. There's a, lot, there's a lot of pain in the world, and maybe we've tasted a lot of it, but I guarantee that Christ, he can, he can not only, he can, he can um, emphasize with you because he's been through a lot of pain, but on top of that, he went lower. There is no worse pain than suffering the wrath of his Father. Um, so the fifth and uh, final thing to behold, we've beheld him going as low as possible. Now we're going to behold the Father's reward for the humility of Jesus. And this is in verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I want to read, reread this set of passages, um, these verses, in the way that I think Paul wants us to read it. Name comes up four times, and yet he doesn't give the name to the very end. So it's this idea of, I'm going to mention this name that's above every name, and I'm going to keep on mentioning it, bringing up the suspense, until finally I'll tell you what the name is. And so let's try to read it like that. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every single name. What does that mean, Paul? What, I can think of some high names. I mean, look at my name. No, he's probably better than my name. What about the President of the United States? Is, he, is his name better than Barack Obama's name? Yeah, it's probably better than that. Okay, well, what, 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 what is the name that's above every name? The only name I can think of that's above every name is the name God has. Well, let's look. Um, and so he exalted, he bestowed on the name above every th- name, so that at this name that you refuse to tell us, Paul, of Jesus, every knee should bow, not just the knees of mankind, but the knees that are also in heaven, angelic beings, and also the knees that are under the earth, the demonic beings, they're all going to bow to this name. What is this name? And every tongue's going to confess, and here comes the name, Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul, that's not a name. That's a title. What's the name? Well, uh, the Greek word for Lord is kurios. Fudd mentions this a couple times in a couple of the past Matthew sermons. If you go back and you listen to Stephen Paps' sermon on this very passage in the Philippian series uh, on the podcast, he also mentions this. But it's the same word. When they translated the Old Testament into Greek, they replaced the word Yahweh with the word Lord. And so you can see it if you read your Old Testament Bibles. Every time you come across the term Lord and it's in all capital letters, What's really being conveyed there is Yahweh. And so the idea here is Paul saying um, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. And to back this up, he's not, you know, he's not making this stuff up. He's actually drawing off of an Old Testament passage in Isaiah 45. Um, so I'm going to read verses 23-26 of Isaiah 45 to kind of confirm that this name is it's the name of Yahweh. By myself, this is God talking, by myself I have sworn... From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in Yahweh it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In Yahweh all the offspring of Israel shall be justified 
shall glory. And so Paul wants us, there's a reason he's putting in front of us the reward of Jesus for his humility because he wants us to know that there is, there is, a, there is an eternal reward for those who walk the path of humility, those who walk the path of a cross-bearing life. There's a reward. And so look at that reward. Now, there's one major difference here. You know, we might say to ourselves, well, Jesus is always shared in the name of God. I mean, we just said in verse 6, right, he's in the form of God, so he's always shared that name. The major difference here is now he shares in that name as a man. Now he shares in that name as a man. Uh, One commentator, uh, Peter O'Brien, writes this, All authority in heaven and on earth were his by nature, but now they're his by gift as well. So that's the difference there. And so as we look at the reward for humility, uh, we, need to, we need to know this. C.J. Mahaney says this, humility draws the gaze of our sovereign Lord. And so humility attracts the grace of God. Now, that sounds really works-oriented, right? If we just pick up our you know, bootstraps and we walk in humility, then God will have grace on us. Well, that's not the idea here. Look at the very next two verses in Philippians 2. 12, um, look at 12 through 13. It says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not as only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so we know that if we are able to walk in humility, it's because God has already had grace on us and has already been working in us and through us. Um, so though we might suffer a lot in this life, by walking the humble path in the way that Christ himself suffered a lot in this life by walking the humble path, we know that we serve a God who, um, we know we serve a God who rewards humility with eternal rewards. Um, Matthew 6.20 says, you are storing up treasures in heaven. It's that idea. Um, and so I kind of want to conclude uh, with just one question. You know, we've beheld Christ. We, we see that beholding Christ so that we can become Christ. We saw that we beheld the heights and the majesty from which he came. We, we saw the humility of God in the mindset of Christ. We've seen the depths and the shame to which he sank. We saw the Father's reward for his humility. And so now, in light of this, I want to just ask one question. But first, let me read a quote from Peter O'Brien. It says this, It ought not to be assumed that the bending of the knee by all talking about verses 9 through 11, the bending of the knee and the confessing of the tongue, will be in glad acknowledgement of Jesus' lordship. Don't assume that. Since the following words of verse 10, which explain the meaning of every knee, include both good and evil beings, the angels, mankind, demonic beings, everybody's going to bow, who acknowledge Jesus' rule rather than voluntarily confess or praise him. So one ought to understand the bowing of the knee not as an or one ought to understand the bowing of the knee as an act of submission to one whose power they cannot resist. And so it's this idea of a conquering king conquers your nation. All of a sudden you're like, you know, gee, thank you for conquering my nation. That's not how you're like. But, but that nation is forced to bow to them and to submit to his authority. It's that idea. They're not, they're not doing that because they want to. They're doing that because there's a greater power in front of them and he has conquered them and they have to. And so... Don't think that all the knees that bow on that day are doing it out of joy for Christ. And so that brings up this, that there's two kinds of knees. There's those that in this life, we've lived a life that's characterized by the humility of Christ. 
We've believed in the gospel that Jesus died for our sins and that by faith we've, we've placed faith in him. And by faith, God counts his punishment as our punishment and we receive grace from God. We, you know, that's the one need, the, the need that lives a lifestyle of worship to God through the gospel. The other kind of need is the lifestyle of I'm rejecting the gospel. I'm going to rebel against God. I'm not going to acknowledge Jesus as Lord of my life. Those are the two kinds of needs. And we know the reward of one is eternal life. They'll be granted a glimpse of God unhindered by sin. And they'll be able to just gaze at God and look at him and enjoy him forever to his glory. And then the other group, they're going to be cast into the lake of fire. The wrath of God for all of eternity. Eternally destroyed because they trampled upon the name of God. And they put, in pride, they put themselves on the throne of God. And they, took, they dethroned God in their own hearts. So there's those two groups. And so my question is this. Which group are we a part of? Do we embrace already the humble king? Or do we continue to rock, walk in pride even to this day and reject him? Um, you know, if we're walking in pride today and we're rejecting the gospel today, then I, I beg you, turn and behold the glories that we just saw about Christ. Turn and trust in Christ for your salvation and become like him. Um, if we're of the first group, which um, believers in Christ, followers of Christ now, then I, I say this to you, continue to have a lifestyle of beholding the glory of God in Christ. Continue to read your Bible so that you might catch a glimpse of God. Continue to pray to God that he might have grace on you to see Christ. Eat your peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I mean, remembering that Christ once was confined to food. He had to eat. He was dependent upon it. Use even your food as an excuse to think about the deep humility of Christ. Every opportunity and that we might continue to behold his glory and continue to be transformed so that the gospel's advancement will continue to go out. Um, so we've got some time at the end of the service. Uh, Remedy intentionally puts the worship songs at the end of the message so that we can hear the word and then respond to God in worship. Um, so whatever the Holy Spirit is leading uh, your heart to do, maybe he's brought up some sin issues in your life that you know that the, the root of it is, is pride and maybe he's brought those things up and you just need to submit to God and you need to just ask for uh, forgiveness and repentance from those sins and that he might overwhelm you with the humility of Christ and might make you become more humble and conquer your sin through a vision of him. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's you've just, you've caught that glimpse of glory and, and you know you're excited and you're joyous and you just want to worship, stand up and just proclaim the majesty of God in these songs. Uh, whatever it is that God's leading you to, maybe you need to talk to someone. Grab the person you came with. Grab me, grab Fudd, whoever it is you need to talk to and come find us. We'll, we're more than willing to talk. Um, whatever the Spirit of God is leading you to do in this time, just take time and do it. So let me just end in prayer. And then we'll worship our humble king. Father, yours is an upside-down kingdom led by an upside-down king. There is no one greater. There's no one more awesome. And yet there is no one who became lower and the least of men. Give us a glimpse of Christ. Give us a glimpse of your glory in his face and transform our lives. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.